Welcome to First Unitarian Society of Minneapolis, the birthplace of Congregational Humanism. We carry on that tradition of free thought today, dedicated to promoting a free search for truth, meaning, and justice. Our web address is firstunitarian.org. I'm David Breeden, Senior Minister. Welcome. On this cold day in Minnesota, I invite you to picture a summer camp. It's 1953, and two dozen boys have just arrived for their stay. These kids have just finished fifth grade, and they are the embodiment of the 1950s American stereotype. They're all from white, middle-class, Protestant, two-parent families. And I can assure you that those two-parent families fit into the box of one mom and one dad. Prior to their arrival, the boys had been randomly assigned to two groups that gathered in separate parts of the camp. At first, each group didn't even know that the other group was there. They bonded within their groups and did all sorts of classic camp activities like hiking and swimming and sitting around a campfire. The boys and their families didn't know it, but this was no normal summer camp. It was a sociological experiment. An experiment with questionable ethics, but a clear goal. And so that initial idyllic period came to an end. The camp counselors were actually grad students. You always got to watch the grad students. <laughs> the counselors introduced the two groups to each other, not by having them share a meal or a party, but rather by pitting the two teams in competition against each other. The group of boys who had named themselves the Rattlers won both the first baseball game and the tug of war. The losing group, the Eagles, tried to rationalize their loss, and their minds went quickly to conspiracy theories. Maybe the Rattlers weren't really even fifth graders, but older and stronger kids. By the next day, these two groups of tweens, who had everything in common, descended into violence starting a fistfight so serious that the counselors had to break it up. Despite that moment of peacemaking, the counselors mostly and secretly were egging things on, doing things like making messes that the teams would blame on each other. Soon the camp was a hotbed of vandalism, stealing, cabin raids, food fights, and the burning of the opposite team's flag. As the reporter Elizabeth Colbert summed it up recently in the New Yorker magazine, all it took for them to come to loathe one another was a different totem animal and a contest for some pen knives. It's amazing how easily human beings can be divided into rivalries by those with power. This experiment at the summer camp has been studied and written about a fair amount, so you may know how it ends. The camp counselors fabricated a couple of emergencies to bring the boys back together. The water supply to the camp was cut off by a rock slide. The only way to fix it was for both teams to work together, which the boys did harmoniously and successfully. And by the time the camp ended, the two teams agreed to ride on the same bus home, and one team even bought milkshakes for the other. Although the study's methodology was seriously flawed and the kids that was seriously flawed, the kids did swing from hating each other to getting along in fairly short order. 
If there's an upside to human malleability, it's that goodness can be nudged, cajoled, or cultivated. Again, the direction of leadership by those with power greatly matters. As I said, this experiment is somewhat well known, but what may be less well known is that the experiment was actually a second attempt. A second attempt by the same researcher after his first experiment at a different summer camp did not go as he had hoped. The researcher, Musafer Sharif, had taken a different approach at that camp. He had all the boys bond and become friends at the beginning, and then the counselors tried to drive them apart. The author, Gina Perry, describes this in The Lost Boys, her book about Sharif. But the boys in that first camp did not behave in ways that supported Sharif's hypothesis. When the counselors tried to stir up trouble, the boys were already friendly, and so they took a more forgiving approach to each other. When one team won the tug of war, the losing team conceded that the rivals had been stronger and better organized. In fact, over time, the two teams grew united in their suspicions of what the counselors were doing. <laughs> Sharif ended the experiment early because it wasn't going to give him the result he wanted. The boys' bonds of friendship were not easily dismantled by misinformation and manipulation. Sometimes people targeted for division can avoid the fate that those in power have in mind for them. Our theme this month here at the First Unitarian Society of Minneapolis is widening the circle. And today I want to talk about a few of the many circles in our lives. There are circles we choose and circles we end up in. There are layers of community and identity and geography. These circles often overlap, giving each of us our very own Venn diagram, one that tells us who we are by the company we keep. There are also plenty of circles that don't overlap and strong forces that can push circles apart. That's why I wanted to share the stories of the summer camp experiments. Even though the research was flawed and by today's standards unethical, the, even the parents didn't know what was happening, there are clear parallels to the current events. Now, of course, one could argue that tweens are not adults and groups of males might behave differently from groups that include more gender identities. But history, including very recent history, shows us that sometimes it doesn't take much more than a mascot or a slogan or a nefarious leader for members of a group to behave in fearful or even aggressive ways. Human beings can be quick to draw a closed circle and view everything outside of it as a threat and everyone inside of it as an enemy. Human goodness and human badness are equally contagious. So it matters greatly how any circle of people forms and how it embraces norms. It matters greatly how we consent to be divided. Questions like these, questions of division and overlapping communities, of cruelties and connections, questions like these seem especially important right now and right here in Minneapolis. A few weeks ago, when I selected today's date to lead our Sunday assembly, I wasn't giving any thought to speaking about public safety or a mere lock. That's because a few weeks ago, like you, I had never heard of Amir Locke. And now, like far too many others, he's become a household name. 
And although I didn't initially plan to talk about his death, I'm going to now, because his story and in the reaction, in his story and in the reaction to his killing, we can see many of these overlapping circles and isolated circles and circles of concern. Widening the circle of concern is actually the name of a denominational report that came out in 2020, and Reverends Kelly and David are going to talk about it later this month. But when I think about the idea of a circle of concern, and I think about Amir Locke, I see a fainter and smaller circle than I expected, than any, many of us hoped for. After George Floyd was killed by Minneapolis police, the circle of concern literally extended around the world, emanating from the humble intersection of 38th Street and Chicago Avenue. There were protests everywhere, from here to Australia, to Kazakhstan, to Argentina. There were reckonings, overdue truth-tellings, destruction, creation, revelation. Around town, there were justice for George Floyd signs on seemingly every block, block, and black lives finally mattered in every neighborhood. And there was an explosion of color, murals all over, reminding us to remember George Floyd as vibrant and alive. It's hard to think of a time when the circle of concern had ever been wider or more universal. By contrast, these past 11 days have been, I don't even have to tell you, do I? Most of us are, of course, grateful that there has been less chaos, but the circle of concern for Amir Locke seems narrow and faded and less enduring. Amir's death at the hands of our police department is no less tragic than the death of George Floyd, and Amir's life was cut short at a much earlier age. The ability to answer the uncomplicated demand of many black activists, stop killing us, stop killing us. That simple plea once again seems beyond the grasp of our city. A city whose residents might rightly wonder whether it's learned anything in the past two years. Maybe shame is why Amir slipped off the front page so quickly. Maybe that's what why there's been so much of what one of my friends has called white silence. I have to think that shame is playing a role, perhaps a significant role. Shame that, as a community in the national and global spotlight, we failed to protect another black man from the police. Perhaps there is shame that we collectively re-elected an unpopular mayor and got the same result we were getting before. Shame is not an inappropriate reaction to what happened to Amir Locke or to the police killings that happen with devastating regularity in our state. It is shameful, and silence is shame's reliable sidekick. The events of the past several months, including last fall's municipal election, have me thinking again of those kids in the summer camps and those experiments. I'm thinking about where the circles overlapped and where they didn't. And I see echoes of the later experiment, the one in which the two groups didn't know each other and the leaders stirred up conflict. Here in Minneapolis, after George Floyd was murdered, we roughly had two circles of citizens, those who had long been afraid of both crime and the police, and those who were newly fearful of crime and newly aware of the MPD's decades of brutality. Those two circles had an overlapping interest in wanting things to improve, 
Where there was less overlap was how to go about it. Enter the camp counselors. In this case, well-funded interest groups. In a wary and exhausted city, they ramped up the anxiety with a blizzard of advertising that played on fears, stoked division, and had an elastic definition of the truth. At certain points, I was receiving at least two election postcards a day. And despite return addresses proclaiming Minneapolis, many if not most of those cards were ma mailed from suburban zip codes. Keep the incumbent mayor, the postcards warned, so we can keep our police chief. A majority of voters followed this advice and kept the mayor. A month later, the police chief quit anyway. There were other servings of baloney designed to scare and divide. There won't be any police if you vote yes on question two. The activists who want to replace the police with the Department of Public Safety have no plan. The screaming postcards weren't true, but a decisive majority of Minneapolitans voted against systemic change. And here we are, at least as afraid as we were before, with problematic officers not only retained but freshly promoted, and Amir Locke executed under a blanket. Our once proud city seems not to be learning, either from experience or from what a new generation of leaders from marginalized identities have been trying to teach us. There are plenty of reasons a city might feel shame. But shame and silence are only useful if they lead to action. And there's probably more behind this relative silence than just shame. For example, I've talked to a few people who have expressed feelings of hopelessness. Hopelessness that things will ever improve. Hopelessness that the non-overlapping circles will find commonality and a path forward. I know that from this pulpit we've heard differing views on the value of hope. And I respect the questions about the usefulness of hope as an emotion. But I can tell you with certainty that hopelessness has much less to recommend it. In a meeting the other day with some of FUS's most dedicated members, I wondered aloud about this muted response to, to Amir's death. I wondered whether we've come to a place where a police killing cannot hold our collective attention and we go on with our day. The members assured me that no, no, they had been thinking about it a lot and they were greatly troubled. Any silence was silence of anger and sorrow and frustration, being confounded about what to do next. One thing I do know about this relative silence, this time of fewer headlines and smaller marches, is that quieter labors of justice are going on. And this work is more beautiful than a mural and more effective than a lawn sign. The work that's been going on has centered Amir Locke's family and their wishes for what they want to see. Yes, they wanted demonstrations and the chance to speak publicly, to name the rage and grief, and to remember their son and spread the memory of what he meant to them. No one wants to be remembered first for how they died. We want to honor our loved ones for how they lived and the gifts they brought to this world. But in addition to these public events, the family also has work, been working quietly with lawyers and activists on legal strategies to try to find the way, the best way to get accountability from the city that is responsible for this tragedy. 
You may have seen on the news that on Friday, more than a thousand ethics complaints were filed against the mayor over his handling of a supposed ban on no-knock warrants and over the city's slander of Amir as a suspect when he most certainly was not. I was grateful to be able to sign one of the complaints and there was a good showing of activists at City Hall on Friday, including our own Reverend Kelly Clement, bearing witness to the importance of demanding truth from our elected and appointed officials. So there is action happening. It looks different and it's less visible than what we saw in the long summer of 2020. But justice is being pursued here in the middle of a frigid and restless winter. The wheels are turning steadily forward because enough people see the overlap in our circles of humanity. And so as we go forward, let's remember the lessons of how things went at those summer camps. Let us not be dangerously divided by those who have more power and self-interested agendas. Let us have a true and broad understanding of who our allies are. Let us not allow fear to throw off our compass. And let us focus on what unites us, what bonds us, and let us stick together to ask hard questions of those who would lead us so that the circle of concern widens to include every person. Black Lives Matter. May it be so. Thanks for listening. You can find much more about humanism and what's happening at First Unitarian Society in Minneapolis by visiting our website at firstunitarian.org.